This is a work of fiction. Honest. Ragbag presents Endless Impossible, written and performed by Frank Burton. Here begins a new eight-part story. Endless Impossible will also be available as a book, the fourth in the Ragbag series. Buy a copy for each of your friends. You'll be the talk of the town. Later on, we'll enter the footnotes section. That's the optional extra content for the hardcore members of the Ragbag Alliance. Let's begin with episode one of Endless Impossible. When I was nine years old, my dad was the lead suspect in a murder case. He was taken in for questioning and held for a couple of days. The press were having a field day with the gruesome details. While my dad was being grilled by the cops, there were journalists camped outside our house who'd fire incomprehensible questions at us whenever we appeared at the window. My mum kept me off school. It wasn't long before the boredom kicked in. I tried some self-directed homeschooling. I already knew I wanted to be a writer when I grew up. I was developing a sense that I was the sort of person who noticed things other people may have missed. I started writing down some of the things I'd been noticing recently. There were some open-ended questions. Why did dustbins always smell the same regardless of what you threw into them? Why did round trees fruit gums stick to your teeth so much? Is that why they called them gums, or was that just an unfortunate coincidence? I knew these observations weren't destined to win me the booker, but it was a start. One afternoon, I was sitting on the living room carpet. My mum was drinking neat gin and watching an old film on TV. There was some kind of dinner party scene. I looked at my mum's glass and compared it to the glasses in the hands of the fictional characters on screen. Eureka! I dashed back to my bedroom and wrote it all down. For the first time, I felt like I'd written something ready-made for an audience. This wasn't just for my own entertainment. But where would I find my audience? I was a nine-year-old boy in the late 1980s. There were limited opportunities. It wasn't until that evening when I took a peep through the closed blinds and remembered about the gaggle of journalists lurking on the other side of a garden fence. They were pacing around restlessly, itching to go home at the end of another wasted afternoon. Now was my chance. I grabbed hold of my notebook and made a couple of last-minute scribbles before venturing out onto the front lawn. Due to a recent misunderstanding, which I won't bore you with the details of, our front lawn will be best described as a storage area for a large collection of industrial-sized candy floss machines. This proved to be a useful means of grabbing their attention. I climbed on top of one of the units and cleared my throat. The journalists turned round, surprised to see the murder suspect's son standing there unsupervised. You never see anyone drink white wine on TV, do you? I called out. Have you noticed that? It's always a large measure of red. You know why that is, I've figured it out. White wine is too transparent. In a certain light it looks like they're drinking water. The whole purpose of using a wine glass as a prop is to provide a convenient visual indicator that the characters are relaxing or enjoying themselves. But it's not as simple as that because it still doesn't explain why TV characters drink red wine instead of having a pint of beer, a far more popular beverage in the real world. The absence of which can't be explained by the white wine principle. 
A beer glass is immediately identifiable as an alcoholic beverage, but in television land it's mainly a signifier of social class. We do indeed see beer being consumed by fictional characters on TV, but only by lovable salt-of-the-earth types. It's not the tipple of choice for the criminals, the gangsters, the lowlifes. They're spirit sippers, right? Usually whiskey. White spirits wouldn't work. Again, too transparent. I'd be tempted to say whiskey is used as a symbol of social class too, but that's far from the case. Have you noticed who else drinks whiskey, knocking it back in hefty great swigs at three in the afternoon? Businessmen. The super rich. No red wine for these guys. Too sophisticated. Too effeminate. For businessmen and criminals alike, whiskey is the symbol of strength, of power. It was at that point that I felt a pair of hands gripping me gently by the legs. Inside, my mum whispered firmly. I couldn't tell how long she'd been standing behind me, but clearly she'd seen enough. I hoped I'd made some kind of impression on my audience. Who knows, maybe I'd be famous after this. There was actually a small TV crew there who'd filmed the whole thing. Sadly, my speech never made it onto the news. They caught the guy who did the murder. Nothing to do with my old man. He was released without charge, and that was the end of that. I forgot all about it myself. Then a couple of weeks later, I received a letter. My dad opened the envelope, assuming it was for him. He stuck it in my hand while I was eating my breakfast. The first thing I noticed was the headed paper. What's this? I said. Looks like it's for you, he said. Really? Well, it's not for me, he muttered. You're the only other Frank Burton I know. He left for work without saying another word. I abandoned my Cocoa Pops and studied the typewritten letter in my hand. The letter said, Dear Frank, My name is Dennis Gleason. I'm one of the journalists who was hanging around outside your house earlier this month. First of all, please accept my sincerest apologies. I could say I was only following orders, but that doesn't quite get me off the hook. I'm sorry for harassing your family. For what it's worth, I will never personally employ these kind of tactics to get a story again, orders or otherwise. I'd like you to know I enjoyed your unexpected monologue. Clearly you're highly articulate and insightful for a person your age. No doubt you have a fine career as a writer or public speaker ahead of you. In the meantime, keep honing your skills. I would have loved to have turned your observations into some kind of feature for the newspaper, but given the circumstances, this was not deemed to be appropriate. You may be pleased to hear that since hearing your monologue, we've started playing a game in our office called Spot the White, where players score points each time they successfully identify a transparent alcoholic drink in a fictional setting. 20 points for vodka, 50 for white wine. The rules are becoming increasingly specific. Champagne doesn't count, it's the go-to drink for celebration scenes. The score becomes void if the character clearly names the drink, 007's vodka martinis and so on. So I suppose I'm writing to thank you for giving us our game, which has spread to at least four other offices that I know of. Please feel free to write back and let me know if there's anything else you're working on right now. I'd be happy to take a look. Yours, Dennis Gleason. I didn't write back straight away. I wasn't sure how I was supposed to respond. It felt very exciting to have a professional journalist show an interest in my work such as it was. While this wasn't necessarily a ticket to stardom, it was some kind of foot in some kind of door. 
Besides anything else, it was just nice to have someone show an interest in me. My dad was hardly ever in the house, and seemed pretty miserable when he was. My mum, who'd shown a fair amount of enthusiasm for my education, was slowly retreating into her own little world. So yes, Dennis's letter excited me. I read it again and again like a prayer each night after school. What was holding me back? Why hadn't I replied to him yet? Well, for one thing, he was a stranger. Like one of those gangly bearded men from the public information films they played at school from time to time. Was Dennis that kind of stranger, though? I didn't actually know what he looked like, but based on the tone of his letter, he was nothing like the creeps in those videos. Then there was the problem of what I was supposed to write back to him. He wanted to take a look at some of my work. At that point, there was very little worth looking at. I'd filled a few notebooks with a bunch of thoughts and doodles, but nothing that could be considered serious literature. Maybe that wasn't the point. I was nine years old. Dennis wanted to help me get good at what I wanted to do. In the end, I jotted a few things down on a page in my notebook, tore it out, and sent it to Dennis with an additional note saying, What do you think? I still have all of Dennis's letters. There are lots of them, by the way. If you haven't taken the hint yet, this was the start of a long-standing pen friendship. Stick around and I'll tell you about it. I'm bringing this up now because I ought to point out I can reproduce Dennis's original letters word for word, but for obvious reasons, I don't have the letters I sent to him. We're no longer in touch. We'll come to that later. In terms of that original bunch of notes I sent as my first written contact, I don't remember very much of it. It was a list of disconnected ideas, loosely themed around the definition of words. The only part I remember clearly went something like this. If the word OR was an acronym, what would OR stand for? Maybe it stands for, oh really? Like, what about this thing? Oh really? What about this other thing? I shudder to think what the rest of it said. Luckily, my childish whimsy didn't seem to put Dennis Gleeson off. He wrote back the following week. Dear Frank, Thank you for writing back and indulging my interest. Your writing is indeed very interesting. There is some very clever wordplay in the page you sent. I suggest continuing to experiment with language in this way, and you will get better at it. If I'm being honest, I much preferred the piece you wrote about the representation of alcohol on television. It seemed to me you were using your intuition to analyse what everyone else seems to have taken for granted. This kind of writing requires a similar mind to a detective. My advice? Keep up the wordplay, sure. Having fun with language is an essential component of all good writing. But more important than that, keep on noticing things. See what else you can apply your detective skills to. Ask questions. Obviously, being a journalist, I'm paid to ask questions all day, every day. But questions are important for other types of writing, too. I'd be interesting to know who your favourite writers are, by the way. What books do you read? Who inspires you to write? I look forward to hearing from you soon. Yours, Dennis Gleeson. Dennis's second letter may have only been a handful of sentences, but it was everything I needed to hear. No one had shown that kind of interest before, or recognised that kind of potential in me. Teachers at school had often told me I was gifted, but they never really elaborated. I'm not sure if my school really knew what to do with the smart kids. If anything, we were an inconvenience. I was placed on a special table in the corner of the classroom, alongside another gifted boy. I completely forgot his name shortly after leaving school, which may sound strange considering that I sat beside him for years. 
Neither of us were big fans of conversation, so we rarely exchanged a word. We sat there and got on with our work, ignoring the regular kids, and for the most part, ignoring each other. We even sat together at lunch, nibbling our sandwiches in a comfortable, respectful silence. In hindsight, me, and whatever his name was, shared one of the purest friendships I've ever had. In the playground, my silent partner sat on the wall, watching the other boys play football. I wasn't really interested in football myself, but as it happened, I was quite a good goalkeeper, so always got roped into joining in. This in itself was quite a solitary pursuit. Nine-year-olds are notoriously bad at tactical formations. Playground teams usually consisted of ten strikers and a goalie. Consequently, my teammates spent most of their time at the opposite end of the pitch, while I just hung around on the goal line, occasionally punching the ball away or booting it towards the opposing goalkeeper. That's the way playground football goes. Even the netter thinks he's a striker. I wasn't interested in football. I was interested in books. Dennis was the first adult who'd actually asked me what kind of authors I was interested in, rather than telling me what I ought to be reading. To be fair to my mum, she tried her best to be encouraging. She was an avid reader herself. We had a bunch of classic novels in the house, which my mum kept suggesting I should try. I didn't like them. My teacher at school kept recommending children's books. I didn't enjoy those either. I was old enough to walk home from school by myself. I had a phase of calling in at the library on my way home. It was there that I discovered Stephen King, Peter Straub and Anne Rice. Unfortunately, the librarian who worked behind the counter was like one of those bad-tempered schoolmasters in one of those awful children's books. The guy clearly hated children. To be fair, I could sympathise. A bunch of kids from my school used to go in there just to scribble expletives into the Mr. Men books and challenge each other to karate-chop dictionaries in half. They were always thrown out before they managed to. As far as the librarian was concerned, I was just another troublemaker. There were no specific rules against me hanging around in the grown-up section reading horror novels, so at least he allowed me to read what I wanted to. He drew the line at allowing me to take the books home. I asked why. He said I was too young to be reading Stephen King. It was liable to induce nightmares. I would have said, the only nightmare around here is you, but I'd been taught to respect my elders, or at least talk to them in a respectful tone. I decided to stop going there one day, after I'd spent a whole two hours finishing off Thomas Harris's The Silence of the Lambs, during which the librarian mostly sat at his desk, watching me turn the pages like I was a slug in his salad. I may have been taught to speak nicely to authority figures, but once that final page was polished off, I closed the book, placed it back on the shelf, and bellowed, Were you dropped on your head as a baby or something? I left there without waiting for a response. As it happens, around the same time that I started corresponding with Dennis, I came across an easier means of indulging my taste in books. I also found a grown-up who allowed me to explore whatever type of literature took my fancy. I discovered a second-hand bookshop in town. It was only a mile or so from my house. It must have been there for years, but I couldn't recall seeing it before. The shop had the most minimalistic title you could think of. It had a plain white sign above the door, with a single five-letter word in basic block capitals. Books. The books inside were arranged in no particular order. There were children's picture books on the same shelf as Erotica, the King James Bible and a Cray Twins biography. Some of the books weren't even books. There were instruction manuals for flat-pat furniture. 
clothes catalogues from the 1970s, fake books that turned out to be the container for a hip flask, and countless out-of-date road maps of Manchester that didn't include the M60. Some of the books weren't even on shelves, leaning towers of paperbacks. I loved it. Thirty-odd years later, I can still remember the smell of the place. Walking in there was like wafting an antique thackeray right under your nose. The woman behind the counter always wore the same luminous green tracksuit and matching hat, which seemed like the height of cool at the time. Maybe she was secretly a warehouse rave pioneer, or maybe she just liked the colour green. I never said this out loud, but I wanted to be just like that woman in the shop. I asked my mum to buy me a luminous green tracksuit. She said she'd keep her eye out for one, which I assume was a sly rebuke. I never got one anyway. As I say, the woman in the luminous green tracksuit was the opposite of that child-hating librarian. Well, not quite the opposite. She was completely indifferent to my presence in the shop. On my very first visit there, I found myself a wooden stool and a copy of The Shining. There I sat, from 3.30 until closing time. At half past five, the woman announced, It's time to leave now. I did as I was told, placing the book back on the shelf. I picked up where I'd left off the following day. This became my new after-school routine. My mum didn't expect me home until my dinner was ready at six. She expressed no interest in where I was going after school. Quite often, when I returned, my dinner would be waiting for me on the table while my mum snoozed on the couch. The woman in the luminous tracksuit seemed perfectly happy for me to sit there reading, never paying her a penny or exchanging a word in conversation. The bookshop had very few customers. Many casual shoppers who wandered in there were quickly put off by the shop's lack of organisation. Others who made the effort to rummage through the selection of literature on display rarely seemed to find anything to buy. Sometimes a customer would ask for a particular book. The shopkeeper's response was always the same. Take a look. Sometimes the customer would follow up with a slightly incredulous, so you don't actually know if you have it or not. The shopkeeper would shake her head and reply, I have absolutely no idea. I assumed her complete lack of customer service skills was a statement of some kind, an unspoken encouragement for the customer to explore her literary treasure trove. Surely she must have had some idea about which book she stocked. It was her shop, wasn't it? Or was she just a hired hand? Surely not. If the shop was owned by an absent third party, where were this woman's wages coming from? Clearly the business wasn't making enough money to pay for a shop assistant. Unless they were raking in the cash during the morning shift, the shop's existence didn't make a great deal of sense. I was already mulling these questions over in my mind when I received that second letter from Dennis. Keep noticing things, he told me. Ask questions. On reading these words, I immediately thought of the bookshop and its mysterious owner. I'd noticed something there all right. What questions should I be asking? And to who? Or is it to whom? I've never quite been sure about that one. I had no intention of approaching the woman at the counter and demanding to hear the ins and outs of her business practices. She might decide she didn't want me in her shop anymore. Going there was the highlight of my day. I couldn't risk losing that. In the absence of an expert's opinion, I decided to ask my dad. On the rare occasions we talked, my dad always seemed to have something new and original to say. He certainly gave off the impression of knowing lots of things. I just had to catch him at the right moment. Usually my dad would leave early for work without saying good morning or even goodbye. He came home during the night while I was sleeping. My parents slept in separate rooms, which seemed perfectly normal to me at the time. 
I assumed everyone else's parents did the same. A lot of my books featured husbands and wives sharing a bed, which I assume was the way things were done in America. Maybe just for couples who couldn't afford an extra room. Of course, a lot of the time sleeping with someone was a euphemism for sexual intercourse, a bewildering practice, which I was surprised to discover was a recreational activity, as well as a means of procreation. My parents seemed too preoccupied with their own pursuits to bother with any of that. Anyway, my plan was to intercept my dad's morning routine and ask him some questions about the bookshop. This would be a tricky operation, considering how quickly my dad managed to move from his bed to his car. Often he'd sleep in his work clothes so he wouldn't even need to get dressed. One time I found him in his bedroom, fully clothed, soaking wet from head to foot, frantically blasting himself with my mum's hairdryer. Are you alright, Dad? I asked. Oh, he said. I was hoping no one would see this. Don't tell your mum. OK, I said. What are you doing? Well, I had the idea of saving time by showering in my clothes and drying them off. You can see where I was coming from, can't you? Saves on the laundry as well. Sadly, I've miscalculated how long it'll take to get them dry. I've been stood here for 45 minutes. Do you have any other clothes? I said. Of course I've got other clothes, my dad snapped. Why don't you wear them? I said. Then you can hang these ones on the rack. He turned off the hairdryer. Good point, Frank, he said. Why didn't I think of that? My dad proceeded to take off all of his clothes and replace them with an identical spare set from the wardrobe. This, by the way, was the first time I'd seen a grown man naked. Adult bodies looked weird, I concluded. I'm now in possession of an adult body that looks exactly like my dad's did. To be fair to the nine-year-old me, my conclusion wasn't far wrong. As luck would have it, a couple of days after I decided to have a conversation with my dad, he actually took a seat at the breakfast table with me. All right, Dad, I said. He nodded. How's school, he said. Funny question, I thought. Fine, I said. I've been thinking about some things, actually. I was wondering what you think. Is this going to take long, Frank, he said. I really got to wolf this cereal down. It won't take long, I said. There's this bookshop in town, second-hand place. Has a big sign on the front saying books. You know the one I mean? I do, he said. I mistook it for a bookies once. Funny little place. I've been going there after school, I said. He stopped chewing for a moment. Why? He said. To read, I said. Oh, right, he said. Good. Very educational, that. I've started wondering how these businesses work, I said. I go to this place every day. No one ever buys anything. I can't understand how the shop remains open. Interesting, said my dad. Maybe it's a hobby. People do that, believe it or not. One of my workmates, his dad retired a few years ago, opened up a stall selling sweets on the beach. You'd think that'd be a fairly profitable business, but no. It's closed for most of the year. Even during the summer, it's raining half the time. Even on a sunny day, its takings barely cover the day's expenses. When you add the cost of the pitch itself on top, the bloke has made a solid loss year on year. But he keeps going, because it's not about the money. He just likes hanging around the beach, handing out sweets to children. Sounds rather creepy when you put it in those terms, but there you go, each to their own. I don't think it is a hobby, I said. Why not? Well, I guess that the woman behind the counter is the business owner. She must be. And the thing is, she doesn't seem to enjoy what she does at all. She just sits there staring into space.
She doesn't even know which books are on the shelf. A customer will ask for a particular book and she'll say she doesn't know if she has it or not. So they'll go away without buying anything. That's odd, my dad agreed. The truth is, Frank, there are some pretty peculiar people in this world and that's the long and the short of it. I can't help thinking there's more to it than that, I said. I searched for the words to elaborate further. Ask questions, Dennis had said, but what were the right questions? Why are you so interested, Frank? said my dad. Would you like to know more about how businesses work? Yes, I lied. Exactly. Well, said my dad, you've come to the right place, well, sort of. I can't tell you much, but your Uncle Claude, he's the man to talk to. Claude's the business brains of the family. He can tell you about it. Oh, God, I thought. A business lecture from Uncle Claude was pretty much the most tedious prospect I could think of. But maybe Claude was indeed the man to ask about this mystery bookshop. Sounds good, I said. I'll talk to him sometime. Tonight, said my dad firmly. We'll have him round. I'll get fish and chips. Don't be late. My dad glanced at his watch and leapt to his feet. What time shall I come home? I said. After school, he said. You know, the usual. I usually stay at the bookshop until 5.30, then get home about 6. 5.30? Do you work there or something? No, I read books there. Right. Well, me and Claude won't be there until after work, so 6 o'clock sounds fine. My dad whipped his coat on and dashed out of the door. A few seconds later, he was back. Frank, he said breathlessly, while I got your attention, who's this bloke who keeps writing you letters? The question didn't surprise me. Dennis's second letter had once again been addressed to Frank Burton, so my dad opened it again before handing it over. His name's Dennis, I said. He's helping me out. Helping you out? With what? Writing? What do you mean, like for school? Not just for school, I write as a hobby. Hobby? said my dad, as though it were an alien word. Yeah, I said. What's he getting out of this? Nothing, I think he's just being nice. Nice? my dad parroted. Dad, you don't need to worry about him, he's a professional journalist. Oh! <laughs> my dad chuckled. Evidently relieved. Well, that is good news, a professional journalist. With this Dennis fella's skills, plus your Uncle Claude's business acumen, you'll be well on your way to success. A seven-year-old lad. Amazing. I'm nine, I said quietly, but he'd already raced back out of the door. My mum got out of bed shortly after that. Since I'd started walking to school myself and making my own breakfast, my mum had fallen into the habit of sleeping in late. She was usually still asleep by the time I left for school. On this occasion, she wandered into the kitchen in her dressing gown and poured herself a glass of gin. Good morning, she said. Morning, I said. I'm off to school in a minute. OK. She left the room again. By the way, I called after her, Dad's bringing Uncle Claude round for dinner later on. She returned to the room with a blank expression. Why on earth is he doing that? she said. Oh, I think he wants to teach me about business or something. They're getting fish and chips. My mum rolled her eyes and sipped at her glass. It's a shame I've got my bowling club tonight, she said. I'll miss the whole thing. What bowling club? I said. I've decided to join a bowling club, she said. Since when? Oh, I've been meaning to do it for a long time, said my mum. Five minutes at the very least. I can't say I was particularly excited about the evening meal myself either. 
At least I had the opportunity to quiz Uncle Claude on the mystery bookshop. Fish and chips was a bonus as well. There was no one in the house when I got home that evening. Presumably my mum had indeed gone to her bowling club, while my dinner guests were yet to arrive. I sat at the kitchen table staring into space for a while. The house felt strangely still. I was completely alone and I loved it. I spent plenty of time alone, of course. Alone in my room, alone in the bookshop, alone on the goal line, feigning an interest in sport. But as it turned out, there was nothing quite like a big empty house. For the first time in my life, I actually fantasised about living there all by myself. I sat there for a whole half an hour doing absolutely nothing at all. This is what I'd do, I decided. If my parents ever vanished into thin air, I'd just sit here, enjoying my own company, basking in the quiet. My dad and Claude finally arrived at half past six. My dad was carrying five or six separate carrier bags, which he plonked down on the table in front of me. Have a smell of that, Frank, he said. Beautiful stuff. Hello, young man, said Claude. Remember me? We've met many times, I said. Oh, nothing gets past this one, does it? He chuckled, pointing his finger in my face. You're right, Frank, he's a clever one. My dad called my mum's name up the stairs. She's not home, I said. What do you mean? He said. She's always home. She's gone to a bowling club, I said. Right, said my dad. Bowling. For Claude's benefit, he added, Elizabeth and her bowling. You can't keep her away from the bowling. Bowling this, bowling that. She'll be bowling home drunk later, I expect, Claude muttered. Oi! My dad barked it so loud I almost fell off my seat. Show some respect, will ya? Sorry, Frank, said Claude. That was uncalled for. OK, said my dad. Well, let's face it, we've ordered too much, haven't we? Never mind, said Claude. I was expecting your mum here, Frank, you see. I didn't know what she'd want, so I ordered a bit of everything. Fish, sausage, pies, the works. I hope you're hungry. I'm starving, I admitted. Well, let's get stuck in, eh? Then we can get down to business. Oh, yes, business, Uncle Claude chirped. I was very interested to hear you're showing some entrepreneurial interest at such a young age. What does that mean? I said. Entrepreneurial? Well, it's... Uh... My dad cut him off. Let's get some food in our bellies first, Claude. The boy's Hank Marvin. Hank Marvin, I said. Oh, it's a southern expression. Rhyming slang. I've heard of that, I said. I like it. I stuffed my mouth full of chips. After I'd swallowed them, I said, So is that how people talk in the South? Is there a rhyming word for everything? Not so much anymore, I expect, said Claude. It was all the rage when we were kids. Now it's a dying art. Probably just as well, said my dad. Rather childish, if you ask me. I prefer to see it as a playful and inventive use of the English language, said Claude. Sure, sure. Saying apples and pears instead of stairs, that's genius. Well, I happen to like it. What's that you're eating? Pie, said my dad. You're not a fish man? Dad's vegetarian, I explained. Claude hooted with laughter at that. Whoa, good one. I am, actually, said my dad. Since when? Only about a decade, dear brother of mine. Thanks for noticing. You never mentioned. It never came up. What the hell are you vegetarian for? What's your problem with vegetarians? What's your problem with a good old plate of fish and chips? That's what I'd like to know. It's a personal choice, Claude. 
Do they have those where you're from? We're from the same place. Anyway, Claude, it's none of your business. Business, said Claude brightly. Can we talk about business yet? The boys had a bite or two, not technically Hank Marvin anymore. Who is Hank Marvin? I said. Guitarist from the olden days, said my dad. He did a bit of singing as well, said Claude. It's not really important, Frank, my dad added. Try not to ask too many irrelevant questions. You're here to learn. Go easy on him, said Claude. He's my son, my dad snapped back, slamming his knife and fork into the table with surprising force. Sorry, he muttered. So, Frank Jr., said Claude. You want to know about the business world, right? How does it all work? How do you set up your own company? What kind of business could you realistically run? That sort of thing. Am I right? I nodded. So where do we start? said Claude. I was wondering what you think, actually, I said. What's a good type of business to go into? Seeing as you ask, it occurs to me you've been given a perfect start already. You have in your possession an impressive collection of candy floss making machines. Those things don't come cheap, Frank. You can make a small fortune selling them on. I'll stop you there, Claude, said my dad. They're not Frank Junior's property. I believe they are. They're not, they're mine. I bought them off him. You bought Frank Junior's candy floss machines? Why? For the very same reason you mentioned just now, there's money to be made. Is there? How much did you pay Frank Junior for them? 500 quid. I'd say he's got himself a good deal there. Not bad, said Claude thoughtfully. Some might say he should have asked for more, but still, that's given him a solid financial start to do something else with his money. You'll need more than a monkey, of course, but it's a start. Monkey, I said. Sorry, said Claude. Another southern expression, not rhyming slang. It means 500 pounds. I don't know why they call it a monkey, truth be told. Harks back to the empire days, said my dad. In the Indian currency, the 500 rupee note had a picture of a monkey on it. Is that right? said Claude. Yeah. How'd you know that? Am I not allowed to know things now, Claude? Are you the only person in this family who's allowed to know things? Calm down, Frank. I didn't say that. Where were we? We were talking about the candy floss machines, I said. Yeah, but we moved on from that. Evidently your dad has his own little side project with the candy floss machines. Why are you saying it like that? Little side project. Don't you think I could start up my own second-hand candy floss machine business? Well, let's put it this way, Frank. How long have those machines been sitting there out on the front lawn? Couple of years. And when did they officially become your property? When did you buy them off your son? Couple of years ago. I'll rest my case. I expect they'll still be sitting there in ten years' time, rusting and water damaged beyond repair. Meanwhile, the interest on Frank Jr.'s £500 will be growing year on year. I presume you have the money in a bank account, Frank? My mum set one up for me, I said. You haven't spent it yet? It's been there for a whole two years? I nodded. You already have the makings of a proper businessman. I'm impressed. As a matter of fact, I'd say running a business is all about temperament. You need the right kind of temperament that allows you to make careful decisions rather than impulsive choices. Saving your money rather than spending it all on chocolate and Star Wars figures, that's a careful decision. You've done well. My dad polished off his cheese and onion pie and helped himself to another serving of chips from one of the carrier bags. Any more, anyone?
I'm full, thanks, I said. I wouldn't mind a sausage, said Claude. My dad handed him the bag and said, Running a fish and chip shop wouldn't be a bad idea, you know. They were queuing round the block earlier. It's like that all the time. They must absolutely rake it in, if you pardon the pun. Uncle Claude slapped the table, croaking with laughter. Yeah, that's a good one, Frank. What does it mean? I said. Rake, said my dad. It's a type of fish. Not a very good joke, I'll admit. They only sell haddock and cod down the chippy, so it's a misnomer in that respect. They do a good trade, said Claude. I see what you mean, but I'm not sure if it's a particularly fulfilling job on sociable hours, slaving away over a deep fat fryer. No thanks. That's the thing about starting your own business. You can build the business around something you're interested in. So that's the first thing to think about. What sort of things are you interested in? I don't know, I said. One thing that does interest me is this second-hand bookshop in town. I like to go there after school and read the books. The woman who runs the shop doesn't mind me going in there, even though I never spend any money. I've started to wonder how the shop operates. How does she pay her bills? No one ever seems to buy anything from her. I'll tell you one thing, said Claude. Women are very strange creatures. My dad spluttered into his plate. <laughs> very strange creatures indeed. Maybe they are to you, mate. Trust me, they are, Frank. They're very strange creatures. Ridiculous, said my dad. They're 50% of the population, and they're no stranger than anyone else. What do you know about the female population anyway? Claude snapped back at him. Watch it, said my dad. Think about what Frank Jr.'s trying to tell you. He's discovered a business that doesn't appear to be making any money, this bookshop. Well, the interesting thing about the second-hand book trade is most of the books in circulation don't have much of a resale value. It's usually a fraction of the recommended retail price, but then there's antiques, which is a different game altogether. If this woman happens to have a range of Jane Austen first editions or a signed copy by Oscar Wilde or something, she'd only need to sell a couple of those every now and again, and she'll be making a tidy profit. I don't think she's doing that, I said. Why not? There's a sign on the wall saying all books one pound each. There aren't any antiques on display. Oh, or maybe she keeps them behind the counter for when her specialist customers come in. Specialist customers, I said thoughtfully. Yes, there's something there, I think. How do you mean? I've noticed every now and again, someone will come in the shop. It's never the same person. It's always someone different. But these people, these specialist customers, they all behave in the same sort of way. They'll have a whispered conversation with the woman at the counter. Then she'll take them into the back room. Five minutes later, they'll come out again. The customer will leave without saying goodbye. And the shopkeeper will sit back down behind the counter. Oh, said Claude. Who are these people? said my dad. Are they friends of hers? They don't look particularly friendly, I said. Men? Sometimes men, sometimes women. What sort of age are these people? All sorts. What sort of age is she? She's an old lady, I said. How old? I don't know, 45? My dad laughed. <laughs> Thanks, son. I'm not far from that myself. What are you getting out with these questions, Frank? said Claude. My dad shrugged. I'm just trying to figure out if they're customers or, you know, special friends of hers. Well, I don't think they're special friends, said Claude. I very much doubt they're having sexual intercourse, if that's what you mean, I said. Claude dropped his cutlery on the floor and whacked his head on the table trying to reach for them. 
How do you know about sexual intercourse, Frank? Said my dad. I read a lot of books, I said. What kind of books are you reading? Fiction, mostly. I was into horror, but now I've discovered Ed McBain, so I'm more into detectives now. I like a bit of Ed McBain, said Claude. I must admit, it does seem a bit mature for a boy of your age, Frank, but I suppose it's an education of sorts. I'm just saying, I said, it's obvious something's going on in that back room of hers. I haven't figured out what it is yet, but it's been useful to talk about it. I've only just realised how significant it is. If you ask me, said Claude, it sounds very much like this bookshop of yours is a front for some sort of dodgy dealings. Drugs, most likely. That would explain why this woman does need to sell books for a living. I'd say it's the perfect cover story, as a matter of fact. Surely no one would have suspected a second-hand book dealer of peddling narcotics. I don't think so, I said. She doesn't seem like a drug dealer to me. Have you ever met a drug dealer? said Claude. I hope not, said my dad. I've read about various fictional drug dealers, I said. A lot of them seem to wear tracksuits, which is what she wears all the time, so maybe your theory's correct. I'm not sure if I like the sound of these books of yours. I wouldn't worry about it, said Claude. Excuse me, said my dad. I'll decide on what I should worry about, thanks. Look, said Claude, I think we're getting a bit distracted here. I was advising Frank Jr. on what to expect from life as a businessman, and we seem to have got preoccupied with this bookshop. To be honest, I said, this was the main thing I wanted to talk to you about. Oh, said Claude, so you're interested in book selling yourself? No, I said, I don't actually want to be a businessman, Uncle Claude, I want to be a writer. Claude pulled a face like he'd just slurped up a dish of sour milk. You okay, I said. A writer, he said, still wincing. Yeah. There's not much money in that, Frank. I'm not too fussed about money, I said. Oh, well, you need to be to survive in the business world. The boy's just told you, my dad interjected. He's not interested in surviving in the business world. He's got ambitions to be a famous writer, which last time I checked was still a lucrative profession. So you're wrong on a number of levels. My only concern is for every bestseller, there's 10,000 rejects. There's a whole host of failed businesses too. Who cares? Let the lad do what he wants to do, for God's sake. He's making progress already. He's got himself a mentor. A professional journalist, no less. Oh, I wouldn't trust a professional journalist to teach you how to write, Frank. It's a bit like asking Ronald McDonald for help in becoming a fine restaurateur. My dad stood up sharply, bashing the back of his chair against the wall. Thank you, Mr Know-it-all. It's been an enlightening dinner time. Now please get out. You what? said Claude. Can you leave, please? I'm not throwing you out. I'm asking you nicely. I haven't finished my chips. Wrap him up and take him to go. I haven't finished talking to Frank Jr. I think he's heard enough. I certainly have. OK, said Claude, rising slowly to his feet. He nodded politely at my dad and then turned to me and said, Let me know if you do need any advice, Frank. My door's always open. Just consider your options, that's all I'm saying. All right, enough, said my dad. He's not your concern, Claude. He's doing very well without your friendly advice. With all due respect said Claude. I'd say he's steering in the right direction by guiding hand. Who's steering him at the moment? You're not, and I dare say his mum's doing even less than you are. Just go, Claude. Leave us alone. I'm going. Without another word, Claude collected his coat and walked out of the door. Hang on, said my dad, following him out. I could hear the two of them bickering on the doorstep for several minutes while I finished off Claude's leftover chips. 
After a while, my dad ended the conversation by bellowing, No, I will not give you a lift. Show some initiative and get the bus. A minute or so later, my dad stormed back into the house and sat down at the table. I recommend staying away from folks like him, he said quietly. People who think they know what's best for everyone. Claude doesn't even know what's best for himself. Sorry I decided to bring him round tonight, Frank. It was a stupid idea. That's okay, I said. You're lucky, added my dad. You don't have an older brother judging your every move. This is another thing, Frank, being judged. Stay away from people like that. Those people are not worth your time. I understand, I said. Of course you do, he said. You've got a brain in that head of yours. It's good to see. This was a nice thing to hear, but it was rather confusing the way that he said it. He was staring at the floor looking utterly miserable. A thought popped into my head, and before I had time to consider my choice of words, I said, Dad? Yeah? What actually happened that day when the police took you away? I don't really want to talk about it, he said. What had you done? I ain't done anything, he said. Someone got stabbed outside the bookies a couple of minutes after I'd collected my winnings. Someone saw me walking away with a big wad of cash in my hand. The assumption was that I'd mugged this poor bloke. Nothing to do with me, of course. It was all straightened out. They found the culprit, some local drug addict. Horrible business. What was it like, I said, being accused of killing someone? My dad shrugged. As I say, people take it upon themselves to judge you or make assumptions based on, I don't know, the way you look, the way you talk, the way you are. It's best to stay away from those people. Unfortunately, those people happen to be police officers as well. There's not much you can do about it. My dad popped another chip in his mouth, realising it had gone cold and then spat it back onto the plate. I'm going out for a walk, he said. Your mum will be home soon, I expect. I didn't see my dad again for two or three weeks after that. This wasn't particularly unusual. Sometimes I'd hear him arrive home late at night and flop straight into his single bed. More often than not, he'd be gone by the time I woke up in the morning. I thought about what my dad had said that night. It seemed like the kind of advice I should pay attention to. Clearly there was a lot of unresolved tension between him and Uncle Claude. I remember thinking at the time, at least they don't see each other very often. It wasn't until many years later that I discovered that Uncle Claude was my dad's boss at work and they sat in the same office together day after day, year after year. It was difficult to guess what their working relationship was like. As a nine-year-old, of course, this didn't concern me. I was more interested in figuring out the story behind the bookshop. I wrote another letter to Dennis. Dear Dennis, I'm just letting you know that I'm working on some questions and hope to have some answers for you soon. Sorry if this sounds like a riddle. That's what it is, I suppose. Just one more thing for now. Please can you address your letters to Frank Burton Jr. My dad keeps assuming they're for him and I'd prefer it if he's out of the loop. Yours, Frank Burton Jr. Thank you for listening. If you're interested, there's the footnote section coming up after the theme song. I can't tell you anything about it. It's only for the hardcore members of the Ragbag Alliance. 
please take a look at my website, frankburton.co.uk, where you'll find The Green Room, a webcomic about celebrities in the afterlife. There's also the Ragbag Rambler video series and much, much more besides. My other podcast is called I Like the Sound and we've got some great stuff coming up on that very soon indeed. I will see you soon. We're all alone, no chaperone can get our number. The world's in slumber, let's misbehave. There's something wild about you, child, that's so contagious. Let's be outrageous, let's misbehave. When Adam won Eve's hand, he wouldn't stand for teasing. He didn't care about those apples out of season. They say the spring means just one thing to little lovebirds. We're not above birds. Let's misbehave. Let's misbehave. Let's misbehave. If you'd be just so sweet and only meet your fate, dear, it would be the great event of 1928, dear. Let's misbehave. Right, welcome to the footnotes. We're back. We're back in business. Um, haven't done one of these for a year at least, isn't it? In the last series that we did. It's about a year ago and here we are again. If you're new to this, this is the footnotes section. It is entirely optional that you listen to this and it is entirely inconsequential. There is no, in terms of the story that we're telling over the series, uh, you're not going to get any of the story in the footnotes section. This is just extra bits and bobs that we're sticking on at the end. And uh, yeah, we did it with the last series. It was uh, quite fun. Some might say it was rather self-indulgent of me just to have this bit at the end of the podcast with me rambling on. And yeah, perhaps it is, uh, but I, I did quite enjoy doing it, so I'm going to do it again. Yeah, if anybody is interested in um, this process of me kind of picking out the uh, references within the episode, things that came up, cultural references and also references to other bits of the ragbag universe, because it's becoming a very complicated universe, this isn't it, this ragbag thing that uh, we've been doing for the last few years. Um, actually, since the last kind of series of Ragbag Presents, we have also had Frank and Claude are following you, which was on this podcast feed as well. And so that was the six-part series started, <laughs> starring myself and Uncle Claude, and it's all about our adventures uh, <laughs> uh, in, in driving around in the van and having little adventures. So 
If you haven't heard Frank and Claude are following you, I recommend that you listen to that because I had a lot of fun making that too. And it was, uh, I think it came out really well. I'm very pleased with it. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of content out there, isn't there, in the podcast land. Um, and a lot of it is made by me. Um, so I'm just recommending my own stuff now, aren't I? So we've had that. I've also started writing a webcomic series that you may have seen. It's called The Green Room, and it's on my website, frankburton.co.uk. You can see uh, all the issues that are up at the moment as I speak. There are three issues of The Green Room available to read on my website. Now, I won't go into the whole Green Room thing now. I'm just mentioning it because it's probably going to come up in conversation because um, I'm quite very much involved in the writing of it at the moment so bits of it are just going to come out because I'm talking off the top of my head here bits of the dream uh, dream room I keep calling it the dream room because that was the working title of a previous novel uh, <laughs> it's not called the dream room it's called the green room I'm just telling you that it's there I'm telling you that the green room exists so go and check it out it's about dead celebrities in the afterlife and uh, the reason why it's going to keep coming up is that I, <laughs> I'm kind of ob- obsessed with dead celebrities at the moment because I'm in that space. I'm in that kind of space where I'm noticing things and uh, whatever comes up just kind of comes out, you know, uh, in uh, when I'm talking about other things. Like, For example, like, uh, today, as I record this, is the 29th of September 2023, so... I'm in the past. I'm speaking to you from the past. I don't know when this is going to get released, but that is the date today. And Michael Gambon died yesterday. The great Michael Gambon. I mentioned Michael Gambon in a previous uh, footnotes episode, actually. I was talking about the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover, which is a bit of a mouthful of a title, that isn't it? The Peter Greenaway film from the 1980s, which Michael Gambon was in. It's such a if you haven't seen it, it's absolutely phenomenal performance that Michael Gambon gives as this kind of psychotic gangster character. It really is. Uh, it's, a, it's a sad loss, uh, Michael Gambon. He was a, such a great actor. And like I say, that performance in particular in that Peter Greenaway film is so kind of sinister and menacing. It's actually genuinely terrifying to watch it. It's, it's a, that film is a very uncomfortable viewing experience, by the way. It's a, it's a great, great movie, but uh, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it to everyone. And it's definitely not going to be to everybody's taste. But I recommend watching it for Michael Gambon's performance because it's such an amazing embodiment of a character. That and Michael Gambon in... Dennis Potter's uh, The Singing Detective. Those two performances, I think, uh, they have to be... I, I can't think of a better screen performance by any actor ever. Uh, the great Michael Gambon. And also, if you've not seen The Singing Detective, uh, definitely check that out as well, because uh, it was a huge uh, influence on me, that series in particular. And um, I'm a big fan of Dennis Potter's work altogether. I actually recently watched uh, a Dennis Potter series that I hadn't seen before. One of the best things he's done, in my opinion, it's called Lipstick on Your Collar. And uh, that was, I think, made in the early 90s. And it stars a young Ewan McGregor. And it's set in the 1950s during the Suez Crisis. And it's kind of in this administrative office the foreign office i think something like that some kind of military office that 
that Ewan McGregor's character is working in as this young kind of clerk with all these kind of old, kind of stuffy old middle-class military men. Re- really, the series is about the way that society was starting to change around that time. And you've got all this, this great soundtrack of all these kind of early rock and roll records. If you've ever seen a Dennis Potter TV series, they do this thing where you have characters kind of lip-syncing to these old records from the 1950s, 1940s, 1930s. These songs kind of interrupt the narrative and they, they have these kind of uh, weird, kind of surreal song and dance routines uh, within them. It's kind of one of... It's a motif. Is that the right word? It's a motif that you will find within the Sputter series. And uh, Lipstick on Your Collar does it really well. There's some great songs in there. And like I say, it's just about the way that society was changing. There's a great scene, actually, where Ewan McGregor is sitting at a bar with his young friend who they're both big fans of this new kind of rock and roll music and they like to sit around and talk about these records and stuff and uh, it's a great scene is Ewan McGregor is sitting there and he says he, he just he's trying to articulate himself and he can't really find the words with which to do it and he and he just says something's going on things are things are changing I can't explain what is happening but something something is happening it's not just these new records and this new music everything is changing everything the whole lot and these old boys they just haven't got a clue what's going to hit them it's i think it's a great scene because you can see the character is not a very articulate man and he's just trying to articulate himself in the best way that he can and um the way that it's written and the way that it's performed i i, I thought that was really great and it's, it's a good sort of uh way of exploring that that particular time uh, in the 1950s in uh, British history, I guess. So, yeah, go and check out uh, Lipstick on Your Collar. Um, and and uh, obviously talking about uh, old songs, we have uh, a brand new theme song for this series. So the song is called Let's Misbehave, and it's by Irving Aronson and his commanders, would you believe? It's a good name for a band, that, isn't it? And his commanders. So um, he's the leader of the band, but his band are commanding him by the sound of things. A a great recording of a great song uh, written by the great Cole Porter, who um, I have committed myself to including in the Green Room. Um, He's already mentioned in issue two of the Green Room, if you look that one up, which is available, which has got Ella Fitzgerald talking about Cole Porter. Um, But Cole Porter himself has yet to make an appearance in that series yeah i mean let's misbehave what a great song and uh you might be wondering why i've chosen this as the theme song for this series <laughs> so it is very clearly a song about sex isn't it it's it's about let's misbehave let's go and have sex that's what it's about isn't it well that's my interpretation of it anyway it's um loaded with innuendo and it's it's from the 1920s. It's uh, very unusual for a song to do this, but it mentions the year in which it was recorded. Oh, yeah, here's the lyrics. So, uh, if you'd be so sweet and only meet your fate, dear, it would be the great event of 1928, dear. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you don't often hear that. You don't often hear the, the year of the recording mentioned in the lyrics of the song, but you do on this occasion. So, very nearly 100 years old, this. The way that society was at that time, obviously I'm, I'm pointing things out that 
you don't need pointed out, but you couldn't write a song about sex in those days without it being veiled in some way. Because otherwise, you know, it would just be banned or something, I guess. And uh, there's something quite quaint about these uh, innuendos now, isn't there? Because it's just uh, it feels like it's just part of history, and people don't people don't really use these kind of innuendos anymore because they don't need to. You can just talk about sex openly, which is, of course, the way that it should be. It's just fun to have a look back on this period in history and look at the way that these things were spoken about. You know, and they, they were still, you know, even like fifty years later, there were. If you look at comedy from the nineteen seventies, for example, like Carry On films in uh, the UK, they were just full of these innuendos, weren't they? There was, there was uh, <laughs> but also there there were women getting their tops off and stuff like that as well there's this combination of this repressed society who can't talk about sex and can only talk about sex through innuendo and there's also (laughs) just women getting the boobs out as well so which is kind of like (laughs) we're allowed to do this now but also but we're not allowed to talk about it show you some tits but we're not allowed to say the word tits you know, we have to refer to them as mangoes or something like that. <laughs> Some kind of fruit analogy. We can show them to you, but we can't use the words to describe them yet. It's a weird little transition, that, isn't it? And um, I think people of my parents' generation, you often hear them say things like, oh, they, they wouldn't be allowed to do that now, would they? Those carry-on films, they wouldn't be allowed to make them anymore, would they? Because of all this political correctness and all of that. They'd be wrong about that, wouldn't they? Because they, you could easily make a carry-on film now. Those those films still get shown on the TV. It's just the thing is, they're not funny uh, anymore. Because you you don't need to... Just making like a sexual innuendo is just like a really pointless thing. Because you can just openly talk about sex. So why wouldn't you just openly talk about it? It's just part of the society at that time was that you weren't allowed to say certain things and now now you are. So it's the opposite, isn't it? It's <laughs> when you hear and you do hear you do hear it. You you hear you know people of my parents generation in particular like I say will say things like yeah they they couldn't they couldn't do that anymore because it's considered to be politically incorrect and the opposite is true. They could do that and they, they'll they make jokes that are much dirtier than that and much <laughs> much more sexually explicit than that. And the reason why they don't make innuendos anymore is because they're not funny anymore because society has changed. I'm sure there is still a market for it because I mean, you do see, uh, you know, they show the old carry-on films on, on the TV for people of that age because I think they just prefer that sort of thing to modern comedy and that I think that's what they mean is when they say you can't do that anymore what they mean is that they just I've seen modern comedy and I don't like it I like this old stuff better and that, that's just a matter of personal taste I guess isn't it I've, I've not seen Mrs Brown's Boys I, I believe <laughs> that is kind of modern comedy that is aimed at that particular demographic of people who like the Carry On movies, and it's the same sort of humour. From, from what I from what I gather, I've never seen it, but but yeah. But the interesting thing is the, the Mrs Brown boys. He uh, the 
Mrs. Brown character uses the F word quite liberally, drops drops a few F bombs around, you know. But but um, she also does all of this carry on style innuendo. From what I understand, I've never seen it. They're <laughs> talking about something that I've never seen. Um, it's not a recommendation. The people that I know who have got similar tastes to me who have seen it say that it's absolutely awful. But that's I, I'm not going to say whether it is or not because I haven't seen it. I was at a meeting once at the BBC with like a scriptwriters kind of conference thing. One of the people on the panel was talking about how difficult it is to get things off the ground and get things greenlit and get a project made you know and the example that she used with mrs brown boys is that oh of course mrs brown's boys is a big hit and um that 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 took years to uh get green lit and uh, look look what a roaring success that was and uh, the guy sat next to her uh on the panel uh it was one of her colleagues at the bbc they, they, these were they weren't in opposition to each other in any way she used this as an example of, of a show that uh, was difficult to get made because people didn't like it and uh, <laughs> the guy sitting next to her just went ah! <laughs> uh, so you know I, I think it's one of those divisive things isn't it uh, you know there there is an audience for it and that audience enjoys the thing um, but I think a lot of the people behind the scenes are just kind of this is just trash, isn't it? That we're feeding these feeding these morons their trash, which you know uh, <laughs> that's the attitude, right? rightly or wrongly. That is the way that a lot of people behind the scenes uh, feel about this sort of thing, isn't it? Um, what point was I making here? I, I don't know what point I'm making now. Um, I think may, I, I was talking about Let's Misbehave. Going back to what I was saying about Let's Misbehave, it doesn't quite fit with the content of this series, I don't think. It's a, blatantly a song about sex. There's very little sex in this series. I apologise, but there is. There's very little sex. Very little sex. Um, but I, I suppose there, there there's a lot of gender politics i guess you could call it could you call it that yeah there's there's a lot of talk about talk about gender politics i guess uh, and we'll uh, we'll get on to that in in the later episodes um we we've had a bit of it in this episode i guess it's kind of um looking at claude's attitude towards women and stuff like that and uh, we'll explore these ideas later on as the series progresses but there in terms of actual sexual intercourse which <laughs> which we've mentioned already uh in this episode i believe there isn't any okay there isn't any <laughs> spoiler alert there's no sex in this series but there's something about this song that does fit to it this kind of idea of being mischievous <laughs> and misbehaving in some way is um ties in quite nicely with the content of a series i think we used the song words are in my heart for the last series which didn't quite fit with brollywood either but it, it for me it did because there was something about it something about it that fit and i couldn't quite explain what it was but it fits somehow and i think less misbehave fits somehow with this series it's just my feeling on the subject. So I've been rambling on for quite a while now and I am yet to make reference to uh, any of the actual footnotes 
which are a part of this episode. So let's dive straight into that. Um, the cultural references here. There's a reference to Round Tree's fruit gums, which you don't see them around anymore. I think they still exist, but um, I don't know whether you can still get that. I don't know whether they're still widely available or not, and I don't know whether they're available outside the UK. Um, but if you're if you're based outside the UK and you travel to the UK at some point, I recommend getting hold of a pack of Round Tree's fruit gums, which are the weirdest sweets in the world. Like um, like I was saying, they stick to your teeth. They really do. They stick to your teeth like nobody's business, like super glue. It's like eating glue and you've got to pick it off your teeth. It's really, I mean, they're, they're, they're nice, they're nice sweets, but they, um, they're really badly designed. There's a very clear design flaw. So I used to eat them a lot when I was a child. And despite the fact that they stick to your teeth so much. I think perhaps that was part of the fun, part of the experience of eating round feast fruit crumbs was the challenge of the thing, you know. Uh, so there you go. Now, I'll address the uh, the elephant in the room now, which is that the uh, the opening to this series, you will have heard this story before if you um, are a long-term listener. This was included, the, the, the opening uh, where Frank stands on top of the candy floss machines and, and makes that speech in front of the journalists that story has been on the show before now uh ragbag season one which is uh what we're now calling the first hundred episodes of uh, ragbag and it's uh episode season one episode 26 the episode is called have you ever noticed and uh, it was released originally on monday april the 22nd 2019 i don't know why i've I've written it down i don't know why i included to the day of the week i don't know why you need to know that i don't know why you need to know any of this really (laughs) but the day of the week that it was released was a monday um april 22nd 2019 yep so the story has has been used before um but not expanded upon and uh now i've taken it upon myself however many years it is later four years later to uh, expand upon that into uh, the whole series, which is, of course, going to be released as a book as well. So uh, Endless Impossible will be the fourth ragbag book, which you can purchase directly from myself from frankburton.co.uk. Now, of course, there is the reference to the candy floss machines as well. I I do try and um, include, I think all of the ragbag books have got at least one reference to the candy floss machines. (laughs) that are in the garden for the uh, of the Burton residence. <laughs> I don't want to say any more than that because the story about the, where the candy floss machines came from, I've said this several times now, and whenever it comes up in the book, I say, due to a recent misunderstanding, um, the front garden was full of industrial-sized candy floss machines. I don't say where the candy floss machines came from. Um, so I think only, like, you would have to be a serious ragbag enthusiast to know the answer to that question there is an answer to the question it's in the original podcast series in one of the early episodes uh, there's an explanation as to where the candy floss machines came from uh, <laughs> i'm not going to tell you where it is because that that is one just for the real enthusiasts i think now uh the interesting thing is that we've been doing this for some years now and um these characters have have been included um in 
various different forms in the podcast and in the books. Um, but believe it or not, this is the first scene in which Frank Senior and Uncle Claude are together in the same room. What do you believe? Yes, it's the first time. Um, so th- this was a lot of fun to to write and perform uh, because it's uh, it's fun having two characters who you haven't seen together before having them together. It's one of those uh, one of those really cool things. I'm sure there's tons of examples of of this as well from like long running series where you have these uh, recurring characters who haven't for some reason you haven't seen them in the same room. You you eventually get a scene of them meeting now. Obviously they're not meeting for the first time because they're brothers so they grew up together so <laughs> but this is the first time uh, that we're actually seeing them together so it's uh, it was a very fun scene that one frank and uh, frank senior and uncle claude uh, we got very brief mentions of various novelists um because we were talking about going to the library and the bookshop and all that sort of thing so we mentioned stephen king thackeray oscar wilde jane austen ed McBain who uh, I think gets a mention in the later uh, episodes as well, because uh, he (laughs) uh, is one of those uh, writers who... uh, Well, I personally discovered Ed McBain when I was like a teenager, and um, I liked it because it was quite dirty. His books were quite kind of... there There was characters talking... There weren't necessarily sex scenes, but there was characters talking about sex, and there was violence and there was explicit language of various different kinds and uh, uh discovered Edward McBain and went oh yeah this is great this is this is real this is real adult fiction and it's it's actually um aged surprisingly well I mean the uh, there were obviously bits of Ed McBain's novels which uh, haven't aged very well at all uh, particularly in the way that he writes about women but uh, I think the way that uh, his contribution to the police procedural genre was massive, because if you, if you look at it as early novels, they're, they're um, written a very long time ago, but they're very, very modern in their sensibility, I guess. I don't know that much about the genre. I don't know enough about the kind of police procedural genre to know whether he was, how pioneering he was. But I, I believe that Ed McBain was one of the first writers to properly write about police work in a very kind of gritty and realistic manner rather than the more old-fashioned kind of detective novels which have a much more sort of romanticised view of police work, I guess. This is is just kind of really looking at the nuts and bolts of, of what it is that a police officer does on a day-to-day basis, you know, and <laughs> some of it isn't, uh, most of it isn't particularly glamorous. And uh, but yeah, I mean, great books and a, a great writer. Finally, there's a, a reference to Hank Marvin, of course, which is rhyming slang. Rhyming slang for starving. Hank Marvin, starving. Americans, you know about rhyming slang, don't you? You know about rhyming slang, Americans. You know all about it, don't you? <laughs> it's a thing we do over here. We you know, rhyme things, and then it's a lot of fun. You should start doing that over there as well. Rhyming slang. Right, so that's it. I think we should wrap things up now. Um, what shall I do to sign off? Let's see what music I've been listening to recently, because um, we all we all like music, don't we? I would say uh, the best album I've heard for a long time is uh, by an artist called Emi Awusu, who's an a African singer, and the album is called Low Life. 
low without the W. So L-O hyphen life. Yeah, it's uh, such a great album, this one. Uh, best album of 2023. That gets my vote. There's some really powerful songs on the album, but they're really joyous songs as well. And it's very easy to listen to. I was I will say that for it. But there's some kind of heavy subject matter within the lyrics as well. So it's not uh, entirely light-hearted, but I think it's one of those records that just really makes you feel good at the end of it. So that's the best album I've uh, heard for a long time. I've uh, been listening a lot to JFDR's new album as well, uh, Museum. Uh, JFDR is um, one half of the band Pascal Pinon, who I'm, I'm really obsessed by. But uh, I think JFDR's solo material is uh, equally good as the Pascal Pinon stuff, particularly this latest album, Museum. Again, very powerful songwriting and very, very kind of a, such a unique artist, in my opinion. The uniqueness is kind of hidden away in a way, I guess. Um, you, you start listening to it, you think, yeah, this, this, I've, I've heard this sort of thing before. You know, I've heard this, this kind of style of singing. I've heard this sort of style of songwriting. And I'm familiar with this. You know, that that is probably what you will think on your first listen to this album. It's kind of, yeah, it's quite nice. It's quite nice, this, isn't it? I mean, if you listen to it a few times, it's kind of actually you really kind of get under the skin of these songs. It's kind of there's something else going on here. Some something very very unique is happening with these songs, and it's the same with um, the rest of JFDR's work. I think really amazing artist. I'm going seeing um, I'm going seeing uh, along a similar vein actually, uh, a very sort of similar artist to uh, JFDR. I'm going seeing PJ Harvey. Uh, live i'm doing that in a couple of days time so uh, <laughs> maybe by the time i record the next one of these footnotes thing i'll i'll tell you how the pj harvey gig was shall i it's going to be good isn't it <laughs> spoiler alert i can't imagine i'm going to come back from seeing pj harvey and <laughs> say yeah i want to see pj harvey it was rubbish I don't think that is going to happen, but we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Apparently, from what can you hear, there's a helicopter. You hear that? Hear it? Ah, don't know what's happening. There's a helicopter. Yeah, I think from from what I've read, for I read a review of uh, a, like the the London leg of the tour that PJ Harvey's on, and um, apparently she performs her new album in its entirety. And then in the second half, she does like, you know, um, some other stuff, <laughs> some other stuff, you know, the the hits, the hits of the PJ Harvey's. Um, the new album is called I Inside the Old Year Dying. It's really, really good, believe it or not. Anyway, as I say, it's been good to be back and it's been uh, good to talk to you about various different things. So, yeah, welcome back uh, to the series and I'll I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.